You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. You guys want to make your way back to your seats? I know it's hard to keep going. You guys just love you just love each other so much. Say good morning, church. Happy Easter. I um, would lose my ordination through the SBC if I didn't say this. Uh, He is risen. Amen. Amen. Um, Before we continue on in our gathering, I do want to take just a moment, and I want to give us a minute uh, to just sit and pray over our brothers and sisters a lot of you guys are, you know, wired into the, the news and you get your news tweets. I don't know. You keep up with the news and those things. Uh, and if that's the case, you've heard about what happened in Sri Lanka, that uh, over 200 of our brothers and sisters in Christ were attacked um, while trying to celebrate Easter this morning. There were several churches that were blown up um, around uh, Sri Lanka um, with a pretty high death toll to that. And... Um, you know, that's the other side of the world. That's, uh, you know, off the, the southeast tip of India. But um, we are united in, in the blood of Christ with our brothers and sisters. And so as we celebrate and worship this morning, we are bonded on a heart level with our brothers and sisters who are also mourning. So let's take a minute. I'll lead us in a prayer, and then we'll, we'll continue on in our time. God, you are so good to us. God, when I... When I reflect on our, on our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka who are reeling right now, working through um, fear and mourning and also trying to engage the truth of your resurrection today, God, I am struck afresh by the scripture Pastor Mike read us this morning. That, that apart from the power and the truth and the reality of your resurrection, that our brothers and sisters who have died are simply dead. It is in vain. But praise be to God that you did rise from the dead. It is not for this life alone that we hope in Christ, but that you have given us your spirit as a seal guaranteeing our resurrection and our inclusion in the kingdom. God, we pray that hope and that truth over our brothers and sisters today. God, may the truth of your resurrection speak loudly and powerfully over the sorrow of loss. God, we love you, trust you for these things, so we pray them in your name today. Amen. Hmm. Tell you what, though, it's been a good morning thus far. I I know, I know it's, it's a weird shift to go from that like straight into like, hey guys, but and we don't, we, we don't want to lose the joy of today because that is the reality that as much as, much as attacks and, and things like that are evil and they're wrong and they're terrible and we mourn them and we seek to see an end to those things in our world, we also remember that today of all days, we celebrate the truth of resurrection. That, that we are bound together in the blood of Christ, but not just for this world. We're bound together in the blood of Christ for the kingdom of God that is eternal. 
And we get to celebrate that today. Um, it was so cool being in our sunrise service this morning. It really was. I don't know how many of you guys survived or weathered the, the horror that was last year's sunrise service. I know several good, well-intentioned church members lost toes that morning from frostbite. And so we had low expectations this morning, and then we uh, packed the place out, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful time of worship and celebration. And so I'm stoked for us uh, to continue that, to continue engaging in what the Spirit has today. I do have to note really quick before we jump in the text that there are definitely two kinds of Easter Sunday Christians, and you can 100% tell who they are by who goes to the sunrise service and who goes to the regular service. And it's, it's this. It's the ham dinner families, and it's the mimosa brunch families. And that's, that is the dividing line. If you're doing an Easter brunch with mimosas, you're at that sunrise service because you've got something to look forward to. And if it's, if it's ham dinner, you're like, I can sleep in. I can go to the regular one. <laughs> that's such a dumb joke. I'm really sorry. <laughs> oh, we're in the Gospel of Mark today. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a long time, uh, but... Uh, today we're, we're going to be uh, walking towards the, the triumphant conclusion of this text. So we're in Mark chapter 16 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of our house Bibles on the end of each row. You can just um, throw a, a shady look down the row and someone will pass you one. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, by the way, I would love for you to grab one of those and take it home. Just sit, take that as a gift from our elders to you, or even better yet, just talk to one of our pastors and we would love to just give you a copy of the scriptures, a little nicer than our, our pew Bibles. But and that's, we, we just really value believers having access to God's word. So we're in Mark chapter 16. I'm going to read our text for us today, starting in verse 1. In Mark 16, we read this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And this is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of your word today. We ask today as we engage this beautiful and this familiar story of the empty tomb that you would speak afresh to us today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would remind us of truths forgotten, that you would convict us of sin and unrepentance in our life, and that you would draw us to the truth and person of Jesus today. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, it's Easter. I I know that most of you are Sunday Easter veterans. I can tell. There's a couple suit jackets in the room. Like, you guys know 
You know the drill. This is a familiar text, right? Could there be a more familiar text in Christianity than the empty tomb? I, I want to encourage you guys. I feel like God actually has something sharp for us today. And I don't want us to be so caught up in our schedule today of getting ready for mimosas and brunches or ham dinners that, that we miss some of the sharpness that I think Christ has for us. I would encourage you to, to kind of lay yourself bare before the Spirit this morning and, and, and let Him prick you with some conviction if you need it. Allow, allow the truth of what we're about to talk about to sink in a little bit. Does that sound good? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this text we're going to put it in its context. We're going to share just a couple historical pieces that kind of help clarify and bring us into the story. I'm going to share one really weird textual element, and then I think it's going to bring us to what God has for us today, and we're going to end out our time in the Gospel of John. So here's the deal. This text is really familiar, but it does not exist as an island unto itself. We are jumping into the middle of a story that's already moving. It's been moving for 15 chapters, by the way. We're, we're jumping into the very end of the story. And I know it's familiar, but we need to make sure we're actually in the headspace of what's going on here, and specifically how Mark is telling this story, especially because we're so familiar with it. So, so remember, essentially, Jesus' message for Mark can be totally summed up in two verses. You can look at Mark 1.1, 1, 1, and you can look at Mark 1.15, and you can see everything you need to know about this, this telling of the gospel. In Mark 1.1, Mark gives the context for what he's doing. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that truth is the truth that Mark is going to come back to over and over and over. It's the unique angle or lens or perspective on Christ that Mark is going to be sharing for the entire book. He wants you to see Jesus as the Son of God. He wants you to see the divinity of Christ and how that specifically anoints and empowers and gives him credibility to head and lead this kingdom of God that he's declaring, which is what Jesus is declaring. In Mark 1.15, you see a summary of Jesus's preaching ministry, where he essentially says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And that's the summary of Jesus' message we're given. That God is doing something new. He has this kingdom, and you can be a part of it. And this is the message that Jesus preaches and backs up with miracles for chapter after chapter to show who he is as the Son of God, the ruler of God's kingdom. And what's interesting is, from the very beginning, this message is so dangerous and so tense that by the third chapter, the powers that be are already plotting to kill Jesus. It does not take long to get from the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, to we got to kill this guy. There's something about Jesus' message. There's something about this gospel that he's proclaiming that takes those who are in power those who are wielding their power and their authority over others and weaker people, and it sets them on edge. And that should be striking to us. And so Jesus continues this prophetic teaching miracle ministry for chapter after chapter, and we see this 
building tension with the crowds, the Jewish people becoming more and more enamored with Christ and the religious and political leaders becoming more and more infuriated with Christ. And the reason is really simple, by the way. The Jewish people have a lot of their identity still to this day wrapped around this idea of empowerment and freedom from oppression. Remember, the Jewish people exist as a people because God supernaturally intervened and freed them from Egyptian oppression, right? And so this idea of being freed from oppression, of God intervening to preserve and carry his people is deep in the identity. And at the time of Jesus's ministry, the Jewish people are subjugated by Rome. And not just subjugated, pretty brutally subjugated. And so this idea of God showing up and supernaturally intervening begins to boil and simmer and really work its way through the Jewish culture. And they became enamored with this idea of the Messiah, that God would send an anointed one, a special one, who would free them from the oppression of Rome. And so you can imagine when this rabbi shows up and says, the kingdom of God is here, you can be a part of it. And then he starts doing miracles that had grabbed everyone's attention. The people start simmering and following and asking the same question over and over and over. Could this be it? Could this be him? Could this be the Messiah? Is God moving again? Is he speaking again? Is he about to free us from this oppression? And if you look in Mark, the whole book Jesus keeps coming back to, yes, I am the Messiah, but it's not what you think it is. That's Jesus, like once once people start to clue in, this is the thing Jesus comes back to. In fact, three different times, Jesus bluntly goes, listen, you do not get it. I'm not going to conquer Rome. I'm going to be murdered by Rome. That's the plan. And they go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, but you're the Messiah, and you're going to conquer Rome. And that's kind of this tension we see building. And what's, what's amazing is as Jesus teaches more and does more miracles and builds more of a following, as people continue to ask this question, could this be him? Could this be the Messiah? More and more and more and more people keep going, yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, this is him. Yes, this is it. God is working. It's about to happen. And this all culminates in Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem, the center of Jewish culture, the center of Jewish worship, to shouts of Hosanna, praise in the highest. Like God is working. The people are are proclaiming Christ's Messiahship. And then just a few days later, the cross happens. And it doesn't matter that Jesus has been saying for months, this is where I'm going. This is the plan. The Messiah is not what you think. It doesn't matter. When Jesus dies on the cross, the hopes of his followers die with him. They don't see it. They don't understand who he is. You see, his message, his teaching had reached this fever pitch to the powers that be just said, we are done with this. We're not letting this guy go any farther. We're not letting him gain any more followers. We're not letting him spout off his message anymore. 
And they actually go in secret and they convince one of Jesus' inner circle to betray him. And they, they set up this sting with armed thugs to capture him in the night. And when it goes down, Jesus' closest friends, his most intimate, deep friends and followers, people who had pledged their undying allegiance to him, melt like wax and they abandon him immediately. And Christ is left alone to suffer injustice and torture at the hands of unjust, self-centered leaders who are grubbing for their power and are terrified of what God might do amongst them. And all of this works its way toward the cross. And what looked like victory to the Jewish people all of a sudden looks like defeat. What looked like hope, what looked like freedom, what looked like change, all of a sudden looks like the status quo. That this rabbi who taught this beautiful truth of God's kingdom, who did miracles to free God's people, is just another in a long list of people who Rome crushes and publicly tortures to death. And when Jesus cries aloud and breathes his last breath and his, and his lungs fill up with blood and he gives up the ghost and he drowns on the cross. It felt like everything he was doing was done. That that was the culmination of his ministry. And we're introduced to these three women the only of Jesus' followers in Mark's telling of the story, the, the only people who stuck with him to the end, who stood and bore witness to the crucifixion. And it's beautiful in Mark's telling in chapter 15, it tells us these were women who had ministered to Jesus. Not that had received ministry from Jesus, although they did, but these were women who had served and ministered to Christ. They loved him. And so they stick with him to the end and they, they witness his death. And they, they sit and they watch as someone takes his body down and, and goes and puts it in a tomb and they mark where the tomb is because they're going to come back after the Sabbath, after the holiday, and they're going to honor Christ's corpse. And, and, and I, want, I wanted to set all that up. I know you guys know that stuff. But I wanted to set all that up because I want you to do your best to experience what these women are experiencing this morning. They're walking along early Sunday morning, working their way toward the tomb, and they have one goal in mind. They're there to mourn. They're there to find closure. They're there to honor a dead man who they love dearly. And that is the extent of their plan that day. I, I think before we go any farther, it's important to note, like, a lot of us can relate to that. A lot of us, if we're honest, can put ourselves emotionally and spiritually in the shoes of these women because we put our hopes in a whole lot of things. We, 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 we put our stake of hope in relationships and success and jobs and education and our families, and a whole myriad of things that eventually fall on their face and fail us. 
And I think a lot of us have experienced that feeling of just going, I just need to see this out to the end. I know it's dead. I know it fell short. I know it didn't do what I hoped it would do, but I just need to, I just need to bury this one. Right? And that's what these women are doing this morning. They've, they've packed up oils and spices. You see, the Jewish people uh, didn't embalm their bodies. They, it's pretty hot in Israel, and so they, they, they cared a lot about what they did with dead bodies because of some of their theological beliefs around resurrection and, and different things. And so they would take these natural caves and they would carve out shelves in them. And you would essentially wash and anoint the body with oil and perfume. And then you would just wrap it in a shroud and you would leave it in the cave to decay naturally. And once it had decayed down to bones, someone would go in and put them in a jar and put it on a shelf in the back of the cave. And then the shelf got opened up for someone new. And so they saw that Jesus' body was interred kind of hastily because of the pending Sabbath. And so they're coming back to do Jesus justice, right? They've got their oils, they've got their perfumes. And as they're walking along, the only thing in these women's mind is how they're going to get the tomb open. Which is just, again, not, not to be too crass, but you know, they would leave the bodies out in the open to decay naturally. And so they would set rocks over the caves to keep out scavengers and, and homeless folk from sleeping in the tombs. And sometimes they would actually carve uh, the stone into a wheel and set it into a track that could roll in front of the tomb. Maybe not, we don't know. But either way, the stone was super, super heavy. And so as they're walking along, their only real concern is, how are we going to get this thing open? And maybe they're thinking like, well, there's probably someone who works there. I don't know. We'll figure it out. And they get there, and the tomb is open. And as they walk inside, we're introduced to a new character, this angel. And, and by the way, I know, I know it just says a young guy in a white robe. There is totally, like, there's textual reasons for why we know Mark is talking about this being an angel. And it's, it's just boring. So we won't go there. Mark's talking about an angel. And I actually, I will say this though. I said this to the sunrise service and I'll say it to you guys. For those of you in the room who are, who are maybe a little more uh, nerdy in your, in your pursuit of theology, I would encourage you to, to do a study of the importance of angels in Jesus's ministry. We like to be dismissive of angels in the modern Western church. It weirds us out. We don't like to think about that sort of thing. But uh, angels are actually really, really important in Jesus's life and ministry. And, and this is just one instance of that. But Regardless, they enter the empty tomb, and instead of Jesus' dead body, they find an angel. Hey, guys. And they are alarmed. And, and, and he says this line, this beautiful, amazing line. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. One of the most beautiful and profound truths in all of human history said so plainly, I know you're here looking for the dead body. He's not here. He's alive. Sorry. Go tell everybody. Go tell the disciples and Peter, which by the way, was a beautifully gracious way of Jesus letting Peter know that he was still included in the fold, even though he had betrayed Jesus so intimately. 
Go and tell the disciples and Peter, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. Go, you will see me. It's just like I told you. Go, 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 go. That's essentially what the angel tells them. Get out of here. This is pointless. This is a tomb. Go tell everyone Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. He beat death. Remember, this was the whole thing he told you from day one. The Messiah was not what you thought it was. Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer death. So they tell him this. This this is the gospel message. The first post-resurrection proclamation of the gospel is an angel sitting in the tomb telling these young women who came to mourn, he's not here, he's risen. Go tell people. You can imagine how insane of a mental gear shift that is. Right? If you're two days into your mourning process, two days into your entire world falling apart. And you walk to this place to just get some closure so you can move on. And instead, you meet this angel proclaiming the most beautiful, insane, counterintuitive truth you've ever heard in your life. How could you possibly just... Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. You couldn't. They're terrified. They're bewildered. They don't know what to do. But this message they're being told, this is the gospel. This is what Christ has been proclaiming since verse 1. This is the thing he's been setting them up for. I am the son of God. I am the ruler of God's kingdom. I'm here to defeat the dominion of sin and the curse. This goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 3, when God is describing the curse, when he's cursing Satan for his involvement in the fall and in sin, he tells him, there will be enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. It says in the ESV, you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. The actual Hebrew word there is the word for overwhelm. That Satan will overwhelm some son of Adam someday. But he will turn around and overwhelm its head. The image there is of a snake striking out of grass and biting a bare foot as someone's walking along and the person's gut reaction is to stomp down and crush the snake's skull. Getting bit in the heel by a snake would be pretty bad. I've never experienced it. It sounds pretty terrible. It sounds like it would probably only be made worse by stomping. But I also kind of think that might be your gut reaction. I don't know. Don't test this. But this is the proclamation God makes all the way in the beginning, all the way back in the garden, he already knows where he's going. In the moment when, when Satan feels so victorious that he's broken this beautiful thing that God made, God just goes, you have no clue. This is where this is going. You're going to feel like you've won. And I'm just going to crush your head. And in the moment, Christ's death on the cross for everyone there felt like Jesus lost. It felt like the end. It felt like the death of hope, the death of this kingdom. But when the tomb rolled open and Christ walked out, he defeated the curse. He destroyed. Death could not hold him down. That's so counterintuitive. We don't experience that everything in your life tells you that's not how the world works. 
That the death is this looming curse that controls all of human experience. And even though something in your soul says, that's not right, people shouldn't die. We weren't made for that. Even though something in your soul longs for something beyond that, it seems like this looming, unavoidable curse that controls the whole world within which we live. But it does not control Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When death grabs a hold of him, he wrestles it down and walks back out of the tomb. Just as Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, he ties up the strong man and he takes what he wants. Christ is the Son of God. He is the King of the kingdom. And he cannot be held down even by the curse of death. Amen? This is the gospel this angel proclaims to these women. And their response is to run away terrified and tell no one. The end. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I want to point out, this is the weird textual thing. If you're looking at an actual Bible, I don't know if it says this in like digi-phone Bibles. I don't have one. But if you're looking at it in your actual Bible, it says something there like, hey, the rest of this chapter wasn't in the original manuscript of Mark. Which it wasn't. It's weird. We're actually going to talk about this next week. So I won't get into it today, but, but the, original, the original manuscript of Mark ended at verse 8 of chapter 16. That was the ending of the story. Can you imagine that? That's such a weird ending. Jesus is resurrected. Death is defeated. It couldn't hold him. He's gone. He's not here. Go to Galilee. They run away terrified and tell no one. The end. What? Where is this coming from? I... I've said this a couple times, but Mark is a brilliant storyteller. And I think there's actually something really cool for us if we sit and reflect on his, his way of telling the story for a minute. And listen, we'll, we'll get to the rest of the chapter next week. It's cool. We'll talk about it. We'll pick it apart. Obviously, these women didn't remain silent forever. They told someone or we wouldn't be here, <laughs> right? But Mark's choice to end the story there, I think is striking. Remember, Mark is, is the gospel written to the oppressed and persecuted church in Rome under the persecution of Nero in the 60s. This is the church that, that witnessed the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter murdered, martyred for their faith under Nero's persecution. And I don't want to be too graphic here, but Nero's persecution is unique in the Christian experience of persecution, in that the Christ Christians were essentially a scapegoat. Uh, there, there was no, like, put the Christian on trial and tell them to recant or tell them to worship the emperor. Under Nero's persecution, if you were discovered to be a Christian, they just took you out in the streets and tortured you to death. There, there wasn't an, an option to get out of it. It was brutal. There was a terrible fire in Rome that killed a bunch of people. And Christians were a convenient political scapegoat to blame, to, to channel the people's anger and rage and sin. And Christians experienced some of the most brutal tortures they've ever experienced during this decade. And you've heard the term the Roman candle. It would crucify Christians and then light the crucifix on fire, douse them with oil and burn them in the streets as streetlights. It's the sort of thing... This church was experiencing. They, they had seen Paul beheaded and, 
and Peter crucified upside down, surrounded by his crucified family. This is the church that that Mark is writing to, to to encourage them in the truth of the gospel, to say, stay strong, stay vigilant, stay awake. It is worth it. The gospel is true. He's he's retelling them the story of Christ to to encourage and, and strengthen them in this terrible, awful time. And this is how he chooses to share the resurrection story. I think it makes so much sense. It's so in line with how Mark has been telling us about Jesus from the beginning. You know, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has spent his entire ministry preaching and doing miracles and telling people not to say anything. And as soon as he says that, they go and they tell everyone. And the first time Jesus says, go and tell everyone, they run away scared and silent and don't tell anyone. See, Mark tells us the story of a Jesus who is completely misunderstood by his people, who is completely missed by his followers. The people who love him and care for him most don't actually get what he's doing. They just miss him over and over and over. He looks in their face and says, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get crucified. And they go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and act like he didn't say it. In Mark's telling of the story, we see how easily we are blinded by our own sin, by our own self-centeredness, by our own assumptions about how the world works, and how easily we miss what Christ is actually doing amongst us. Even in our love for him, even in dedication to him, it's just so easy to just, just miss him, just miss what he's doing, miss what he's saying. And what's beautiful about Mark's telling of the gospel, especially in this resurrection story, is that they completely blow it, right? They hear the most glorious proclamation in human history, and they run away terrified and silent. And yet, Christ still sees fit to include them in his kingdom. How beautiful is that? The disciples who abandoned him to his fate. He says, go get them. I want to see them. He he takes all these people who love him and love him half-heartedly or love him through the lens of their own self-centeredness and their own sinfulness and their own brokenness. And he just says, you're in. You're in. You're mine. You're included. Even though you don't understand me, even though you miss me, even though you miss what I'm doing here, you're still in. You're still mine. I'm still buying you. You're my bride. I'm paying for you. This is the gospel. This is the simple gospel, as it were. That you can do nothing to actually set up your standing before Christ you actually completely and totally lack the ability to affect your standing before Christ. He loves you because of nothing you've done. He loves you because of who he is. He loves you because he's love. Not because we've done amazing things that have garnered or earned his love. In fact, quite the opposite. 
Can we, can we be that honest and that confessional, by the way? I, I, I'm, I'm cool with it if you guys are. Can we just acknowledge the fact that, in general, we're pretty self-centered beings? <laughs> that, that we seek our own comfort and our own best above that of others, especially that of Christ? Can we be honest enough to say that we have not been the best at responding in a selfless and loving way to the invitations Christ has put in our life? Right? I'm not saying that to beat you guys up. I'm just saying, can we be real about that for a minute? We are self-centered people. We get lost in the weeds of the details of our little lives. And when Christ invites us to something as grand and beautiful and amazing as his kingdom, even when we're trying, we still filter it through the lens of our selfishness and our prideful, arrogant, numb hearts. We just can't help it. And yet, Christ loves you enough to include you. You know, I, I was... I was thinking about this. So I was meditating on this. I was brought back to this scripture in John. I'd love for us to read this really quick and talk about it. This is John chapter 6. I'd love for you to actually turn over there. This is during Jesus' ministry. He just performed this miracle where he, he uh, made a whole bunch of food and fed a ton of people. Remember, these people are living under the oppression of Rome, and so they're actually living in like starvation conditions. And Jesus does this miracle where he feeds them all. And they come back to him looking for more food. And starting in verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Maybe the one with the food again. We like that one. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, hint, hint, Jesus. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. We would like that also, please, very much. Thank you. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. Beloved, there is only one thing you can do to engage the kingdom of God. 
Let's believe in the person and work of Christ. Believe that you can't do it. Have enough honest self-reflection to actually see the the sinfulness of your own heart. The self-centered bent that you cannot get around. To have enough clarity to, to see yourself soberly. And to see Christ clearly. Christ, Him crucified. Killed for your sins and resurrected to life. Raised up that you might walk in newness of life. The only thing you can do is trust what Jesus has done for you. Believe that He actually is who He says He is. Believe that He's actually strong enough to conquer death. That he's actually preeminent enough that his sovereignty extends over the curse of this broken and dead world. It's the only thing you can do. And I want us to hear that. I want us to reflect on that. Your church life says nothing about your standing with Christ. I know even as I'm saying this, right, that there are some of us in the room who go, I know, Pastor, I know, I know, I know, I know. Jesus died for my sins. It's awesome. And in your mind, you're thinking, you totally agree with me, but maybe I'm just a little more into it than you are. I mean, why wouldn't I be, right? They pay me to be into it. I'm telling you guys, I want you to hear this. There is nothing you can do. It does not matter good a father you are, how healthy your marriage is, how theologically grounded you are. It does not matter how regular your church attendance is or what shade of pastel you wear on Easter. You can do nothing to actually right yourself with Christ except believe that he did it for you. So I am terrified in a country like the United States where we are drenched with the most beautiful, amazing story, the most amazing life-changing truth in all of human history. We are drenched in it so often that I believe the enemy tricks us into numbing our hearts to this truth. That we lure ourselves into some comfortable moralism. That we can drench in Christian language. But I'm here to tell you something. If you are trusting in anything, anything besides the person and work of Jesus Christ to change your standing before God, you need to evaluate the mortal peril of your soul. You need to. There is nothing you can do. And I'm not saying that to tell you you're a terrible person. You can probably tell yourself that enough. I'm saying that to tell you to get away from that stuff. It's a trick, it's a trap, it's a distraction. You don't need it. You don't need to labor. You don't need to wear yourself out, exhaust yourself trying to balance the scale so that God views you differently. He's already crazy about you. He loves you with a passion you don't even understand. He went to the cross for you. He, he bore the wrath of God for you. And he rose from the dead for you. You are the beloved of Christ. Why fight and labor for what he is freely handing you? 
So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to give us a few minutes to respond to maybe what the Spirit is telling you today. So I'm going to pray for us, and I just want to open up a space for us to respond in prayer. Pastor Mike and Kim are going to be available at the sides of the room as prayer counselors. If you just need another human being to sit with you and pray out loud for a couple minutes, go grab one of them. Maybe if the Spirit is leading you and you need to pray over this congregation today, you come up and do that. Or maybe you just need to sit by yourself and be really honest with Jesus about how you're trying really hard to earn his affection. Maybe you just need to actually sit in some space and be repentant. Maybe you need to actually allow yourself to just just accept the gift Jesus has given you. Stop trying to buy what's free. Let me give us a couple minutes to engage that, and then I'll come back up and pray, and we'll We'll continue our response through singing, through communion. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. We need you this morning. We just really need you this morning. We try so hard. We... We work our fingers to the bone. We exhaust ourselves trying to write what is bent in this world. And it does nothing. All our efforts come to naught. We cannot even unbend our own hearts, much less this broken universe. God, but you love with such extravagance. You love with such such abandon. You pursue us with with, with such intensity. You you weighed us out with such patience and long-suffering. God, you love us so well. And we only know how to respond out of our broken and selfish hearts. God, this morning, meet us. Meet us in our lack. Meet us in our weakness. Be our fulfillment. Be our strength. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.